Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10, 2022. In our last installment, John shared his experience during the lengthy hiatus in the trial and the steps that he and his team took to keep the case alive during the uncertainty of the coronavirus pandemic. In this episode, Lewin discusses the post-hiatus opening statements to the jury and begins his review of the witnesses who testified in person when the trial resumed after the pandemic hiatus. That's all coming up right after the break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A few quick program notes. Again, because the interviews were conducted by phone, the quality is often not optimal. And sometimes, if you hear heavy traffic rushing by, that's because John is doing the call during one of his early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the reopening statements that Lewin describes, you can find our coverage of those statements in Season 2, Episode 3 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. And now, here's more of my conversation with John Lewin. Let's start with your reopening and what your strategy was in both being succinct and in refreshing the jurors' memories of where you had started and what they'd already heard. We were in a very interesting situation, you know, in a unique situation with respect to resuming this trial. We had actually only done two days of testimony I think nine or 10 witnesses, but I had done, I think three days, maybe 10, 12 hours worth of an opening statement that had really laid out in just intricate detail, everything in the original opening. And then we had the 14 month delay. So there were two issues that we kind of had to confront when we were looking at what are we going to do with the opening statement in the, in the part two of the trial? The first question was, is there really going to be a situation where the jury kind of forgot this case? And we knew that was impossible. We also knew that this was not a case that was about small, hard-to-explain, intricate pieces of evidence. This was a case that had giant themes that were unforgettable. So we didn't think that we needed to go back 
and the jury was going to go, oh, my gosh, who's Bob Durst? I don't really remember him. What's he like? Oh, yeah, he's he's kind of a, a narcissistic psychopath I'd forgotten. So we weren't really worried so much about bringing the jury back to where we were. Yet we didn't want to lose the story and have them kind of trying to remember where we were, what we had done, et cetera. The second part was that although none of the testimony that had been presented, and the only thing that we had presented up to that point had been some history about Kathy, some history about Bob and Kathy's relationship, et cetera, and some domestic violence stuff about Kathy, and then finally the recovery of Susan's body and the neighbor's. So the first thing was that none of that information was actually what I will call in dispute. So in other words, it wasn't as if the jurors had to decide, well, the prosecution is saying X, but the defense in their cross is saying Y, so we have to figure out what happened. Nobody was actually, although the defense didn't do a very good job of, of explaining, articulating their position, but in the end, nobody was disputing Kathy's history, Bob's history, the domestic violence, really, although they kind of went back and forth. The defense could never figure out whether Bob was a, was a domestic violence abuser, whether he wasn't, whether if he was, it mattered. But that aside, those are the two things that we had to do. Now, the judge made things, I think, in some ways easier and in some ways harder for us in that he put a three-hour limit on what we could do. And I want to say that originally he wanted to go less, and we had to push him for more. And the defense, of course, wanted very little, if anything, because that would have been more work they would have had to have done. And they understood, like anything in the case, if you gave both sides the opportunity to work and to come up with arguments and to expend energy on the case, we were going to go to our maximum, and they weren't. So they would always be better if there were limits that neither side could do anything because they weren't going to take properly advantage of it anyway. We decided that what we were going to do was we were going to split the opening. The first part was going to be, in essence, we were going to go through our entire opening statement and we were going to retell the story, but only at 5% of what we had done. And then the second part, which is unique, we were going to actually be telling the jury, reminding them, this is the testimony you heard. And because we actually had video, we were going to cut the important clips that we wanted so they could hear it again. So Ethan and I, that's what we started doing. And we spent an inordinate amount of time on it. And we kept cutting and discussing and going back and forth. I think one of the things that we did that was smart was that we started with part two because we knew that we had to go through the testimony and we needed to find out how long that was going to take because there was a lot less flexibility. I didn't want to skip any witnesses. So how long is that going to take? We needed to know. So that's what we did. And then when we finished that, we knew what the time was. Then we went back and said, okay, we have X amount of time. And we then modified what the opening was going to be. And that's what we did. I think we ended up having a very powerful opening statement. And it's funny because a lot of, you know, again, the critics and people out there said, you know, this is what you should have done the first time. But that's really not accurate because what made 
the mini opening possible was the jury had already actually heard the whole first opening. So it's a lot easier to give somebody an abbreviated telling of a story that they've already heard the entire version of. So that's what we did. Great. So if you care to comment, what did you make of the defense reopening? I did not like it. One of the things that we wanted to do in our opening was we wanted to set up, and this was an idea from the start, and we talked about this previously, that the defense did not stipulate that Bob Rose and Cadaverno out of some idea that, well, we just want to lay this out on the table, et cetera. They were forced to, and that this was after Bob had denied and denied and denied. So the way the opening went, the reopening, was that we had all these slides, I remember, of Bob saying, I did not write the cadaver note. I did not I did not find Susan's body. I did not clip after clip after clip. But then at trial, this is what happened. And then we had a video clip of Chesnoff from his original opening saying, Bob wrote the cadaver note. And it was brutal and completely fair. But the, the judge, if I remember, did not want us to use that. We had to take it out. Um, what I remember about the defense, the reopening, as I sit here now, is that basically it was the same argument that they had used originally. There was very little new. It was still making the same arguments that Bob is misunderstood and Bob runs. So nothing new and nothing interesting. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And now we return to my conversation with John Lewin as he takes us through the witness testimonies of Rashid Sharif, the LAPD officer who responded to the 911 call from Susan Berman's neighbor, and Mark Fajardo, the LA medical examiner who reviewed the original autopsy report on Berman's murder by the now retired former medical examiner. So take me through your preparation for and the reasons for the testimonies of Rashid Sharif and Mark Fajardo. So, obviously, Sharif was the officer who responded and found the body, and he was able, we needed him for the crime scene, the fact there was no signs of forced entry, the fact that there was nothing taken of value, that there were valuables there to describe what the neighborhood was like, et cetera, and that's what he did. He's a very good witness. He's actually, he's going to be mad that, I, that I'm saying this, but he's a lot older than he looks. I think he's just about my age, but he looks really young. And he, he did a great job. I remember the defense tried to make some allegation that he had not properly gone into the house. And I remember Sharif is telling him, I think I'm going to, uh, it's not a homicide call. It's a call of a woman they can't get a hold of. We don't know. You're not going to be, you don't enter every house like it's a SWAT scene and like a murder case. And again, and that kind of goes like everything else that the defense did. And their whole no evidence is evidence 
And I remember this was something they also did in their reopening. You would have thought that having 14 months to think about the case and knowing that Bob Durst was testifying and that you've now admitted he found the body and that there's no physical evidence that he was in the house, that you're not going to be able, or if you're smart, you will not be going back and redoing the no evidence is evidence argument because it's nonsensical. I mean, it's a stupid argument. It makes no sense. It doesn't withstand even, you know, basic scrutiny, and yet they went straight back there. It's as if they loved the way it sounded, and they're going, okay, boy, no evidence is evidence. That's really catchy. Let's use that. Sure, it doesn't apply at all to the facts of our case or our theory, but it sounds so good. So we needed Sharif to do the crime scene, and that's what he did. Mark Fajardo was terrific. So at the time that we redid, started the reinvestigation in 2013, Mark was the coroner of Los Angeles County. The original forensic pathologist who done the autopsy was long retired. So Mark agreed to go back and go through all the records, and he was terrific. Now, the important information he was giving was basically this. Number one, Susan was, in essence, executed. It was a near-contact wound, so that meant that the gun was very close to her head. Number two, there were no defensive injuries, no signs of the struggle at all. And so it was most consistent with Susan turning her back and never being aware that she was going to be shot. This was inconsistent with her being surprised by an intruder and was completely consistent with our theory of her letting someone she trusted into the house, turning around, and then being executed. That's what he did. That's what was important. There wasn't a whole lot else for him other than some of the minor issues regarding timing of death, et cetera, which he gave us consistent with our position of when she'd been killed, which was sometime late on December 22nd after she returned from the movie and sometime before 9 a.m. on the 23rd when the dogs were seen running around outside. So that's the important testimony for those two witnesses. They were both handled by, partnered by Habib, and he did a great job. Habib is, of course, Lewin's fellow prosecutor, Deputy DA Habib Balian. Next, John begins to recount the significance of three witnesses who knew Kathy Durst and offered context for Kathy's actions and behavior around the time of her disappearance. Lewin also shares the story of Lisa Russell, a law clerk in the DA's office who examined a witness in the case while battling cancer. So there's a trio of witnesses next, Sophie Bach, Alicia Landman Reiner, and Helen Block. Sophie Bach was the doctor who ran the clerkship that Kathy was supposed to report to on the morning, Monday, February 1st. The importance of her testimony was simply that Kathy was supposed to be there at 9 o'clock, that she had never shown, that that had never happened to her, that it was incredibly rare, and that, you know, in a fourth year, you would never have a medical student doing that, especially someone who wanted to go into pediatrics in an area where the rotation was involved. So she was very simple, as with the majority of witnesses in this case. There was not a situation where we're saying one thing and the defense is saying, no, that's a lie. And I will tell you that most lawyers, and this included 
the entire defense team except for Chip Lewis. They did not understand how to treat witnesses that they were not calling liars. Most defense lawyers, a lot of them are one-trick ponies. I hate to say it, but they get up there, and what they're good at is they're good at discrediting witnesses. So they're going to show, you're a liar, you're lying because of X, Y, Z, you have this motivation, et cetera. What they are not good at, because they generally don't have a lot of experience, is when you have witnesses who are coming in who are completely credible, who have no motivation whatsoever to lie, and oftentimes who are testifying to things that are not really in dispute. There's a way you need to handle such witnesses. They didn't know how to do it. The cross-examination for almost every witness in this case, nearly every, the direct was extremely helpful to us, and the cross made things even better for us. There wasn't one witness in the entire trial that the defense cross-examined where they made things any better for Durst. In fact, there wasn't one witness that they crossed where they didn't make it either worse, substantially worse, or horrifically worse. And most of the time, their cross-examination made things horrifically worse. So that was the situation with Dr. Bach. And then Lim and Reiner and Helen Block were classmates of Kathy, correct? So, yeah, I remember. So both of them, Alyssa came from Utah. And uh, what I really remember about her testimony, they were testifying to the same thing, which were in essence that Kathy, you know, what kind of student she was. She was a dedicated medical student. She was very well respected, that they would not expect her to have just suddenly left school, and that the absurdity of a medical student calling in sick the first year of their rotation with a minor illness, doing it after the rotation is scheduled to have started, and never contacting the person running the rotation. What I remember about Alyssa is that she was the witness that was handled by our law clerk, uh, Lisa Russell. I don't know if I've discussed this before, but now that it's over, and I think just out of respect, and I think some of your, your viewers might be interested in the story, uh, Lisa Russell was a law clerk that we had in the major crimes division. She was working after graduating from law school and taking the bar. She passed the bar in November, and she was waiting to be hired for things to open up for the office. So she was paid as a law clerk. And she ended up being assigned to my unit. And I was, by this time, we had our cold case unit, which was a subdivision of the major crimes division. It was myself and a, another really, really outstanding lawyer, Beth Silverman. We're the cold case lawyers in that unit. We worked very closely with Marguerite Rizzo, who was our office DNA expert and one of the leading DNA experts in the country. Lisa had been assigned to work for the unit starting in January, if I remember, and she had been working with Beth. So I met her in March, right after the trial stopped. And at the time that uh, I met her, I really liked her. I found out her history. 37 when I met her, and she had a little one-year-old son. And what I learned was that she had, between college and law school, she'd gotten breast cancer. And she had had to have a double mastectomy. Um, she had beaten it, even though it had metastasized. So she had gone to law school, and, you know, she had 
done really well, always wanted to be a DA. She ended up getting pregnant, and the doctors had told her that because of the kind of breast cancer she had, that getting pregnant with the hormones was extremely dangerous. She had also been told that because of everything that had happened, she was unlikely to ever be able to have children. And so she has some religious feelings, and she decided that, you know what, um, this was kind of a sign, and she had the baby. So when I met her, her son was about a year old, Christian. And when I met her, we hit it off, found out this whole story, and she was limping at the time. You know, she told me she had hurt her leg, and she meant to get into the orthopedist, but it was, you know, during COVID, it just started. And Beth had been telling her for a couple of months, you need to go in, and she hadn't done it. So about a month after I meet her, three weeks after I meet her, she goes in, and they give her the devastating news that it's not an orthopedic issue. She has metastatic breast cancer. It's everywhere. It's literally eaten through her bone and her leg, and her prognosis is horrendous. So uh, we were devastated devastated. She had a bunch of problems with her health insurance. We helped her get an attorney who was wonderful, who I had some contacts at City of Hope. We were able to get her care transferred over there, and we started a, a GoFundMe. We raised, you know, $125,000, $130,000 to try to help, etc. And she fought extremely hard. I understood, because of my wife being a physician, my dad being a physician, and having spoken to my contacts at City of Hope, I knew that the disease that she had, that it was not a question of if, it was going to be a question of how long, and that the prognosis was horrible. Lisa was a very determined person. I beat it the first time. I'll beat it again. We decided that we were going to give her a witness on this case. And that witness was Alyssa. And we didn't tell Alyssa what the situation was, although Alyssa's a doctor. And I found out later that she figured it out because Lisa, you know, had, had lost her hair by that point. She was in a wheelchair. But it meant the world to Lisa because she sat up there. She did that examination by herself you know, in that courtroom. And I want to say, I had a lot of issues during this trial with the defense in this case. I will say that on this situation, I'm extremely appreciative of the fact that all of them, and Chip in particular, who I consider a good friend of mine, that they were more than respectful and more than gracious. They knew what the situation was, and they let they did their job, but they did not try to play any games with Lisa, things they could have potentially done. So that's what I remember about her examination. Lisa did a great job. I remember going to her house a couple of times out in the valley late in the evening to prep her for this. And, you know, she's coughing and she's very ill and, you know, she barely made it to court, but she did. And she performed like a champ and her family will always have the video. And that is Lisa's legal career because, unfortunately, she died last Thanksgiving uh, right before, you know, she fought as hard as she could. And in the end, she couldn't do it.
So that's what I remember about her testimony. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin talks about the testimony of Helen Block, the third of the first set of three witnesses who knew Kathy Durst and offered context for Kathy's actions and behavior around the time of her disappearance. Lewin also presents his assessment of the impact of state witnesses, ER physician Leslie Hain, Kathy Durst friend Fadwa Najami, and Susan Berman friend and former Saturday Night Live cast member Lorraine Newman. Again, in the event that you would like to revisit the reopenings that John Lewin describes, you can find our coverage of those statements in Season 2, Episode 3 of this Jury Duty podcast. And if you would like to hear our coverage of some of the witnesses discussed in this episode, check out Season 2, Bonus Episode 2. Also, if you want to listen to all of these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks.